by nature are sharks aggressive? No, they're not. They're not. <laughs> so this is mushrooms growing out of a wasp. I mean, we're just we're exposed to literally thousands of synthetic chemicals just in our everyday life. My family is normal. I just think, oh, every family is just three people. So if we put hair inside bricks, it will be like insulating your home. Hi, I'm Jake Morecambe. I'm Shane Anderson. This is Think Sustainability, where we look at practical solutions for a better planet. Today, I don't think we would ever have a world without ships, but there is definitely more to be done in this space and it can lead to changes and improvement in environmental quality. Could the world survive without commercial shipping? We look at ways the industry could be made more eco-friendly. And carbon storage technology in Australia's rangelands. Why do we need it? And how would it work? But first... Okay, it's related to seahorses. It has some little appendages that look like kelp fronts. That's why we call it weedy sea dragon. It's actually called a common sea dragon. This is Selma. My name is Selma Clanton, and I work as a research associate at UTS. And Selma's a big fan of the weedy sea dragon. So leafies, the weedies, the seahorses, the pipefishes, they're all related in the family called Signathidae, which means fused jaw. That's why they have this straw-like jaw, and it's like a straw, it just goes... <laughs> That's how they feed, yes. And they're quite big. So they are related, but they're like three times the size of a seahouse. How big is that? That's about 30, 35 centimeters. Oh. So it's really... Your and standard ruler kind of size. Yes, yes, yes. Wow. Yeah. Why are you looking at them? Because there's some decline. We really need to know why they're disappearing. We think we might know. It might be the kelps receding because it's getting warmer a little bit and pollution doesn't help. Urbanization of Sydney City, you know, kelps seem to be declining. When kelp declines, these fish need the kelp for protection and also their food because the food normally aggregates at the kelp sand border. It's a tiny, tiny shrimp. And those shrimp will also disappear when there's pollution. So once it goes, of course, if there's no food and no protection... What happens? You go. What is the ecological significance of these sea dragons? What, what, do, they, what do they do and why are they important? Well, important because they're just charismatic and they're an iconic species. They're endemic to Australia. You will not find them anywhere else in the world. So they're in our southern reefs, what we call the Great Southern Reefs, which spans from New South Wales, like Port Port Stephens, down all the way to the middle of WA. It's a long, long area. And you will not find them anywhere else in the world. They're very charismatic. They're significant. Why do you call them charismatic? How are they charismatic? They're just... They're very slow moving. You look at them and they're just like, you know, it's just beautiful. They, they look beautiful. I think they really look beautiful. I think also they're quite different to other fish because they still have this hard cover outside. So, you know, they have no scales. They're really hard, crunchy hard. We have actually no fish anymore that has this type of covering. So it's very special. It's a total different group of fish, recent apparently, uh, if you look at evolution. It's just, I think they just 
look beautiful. And you're taking photos of them. Yes, we are. And so, why are you taking what what's special about these photos? So we use these photos to track them. So every single sea dragon has a very distinct pattern on its flanks, so on the tummy. And we have a software program and Chris O'Keefe from URG. URG is the underwater research group and they're the guys that dive down into the spots where the weedy sea dragons live and take the photos. She does she's our specialist in identifying these fish. And she has such a huge library of photos from all the years they've been doing this since 2010. Like, we've been following some of them for six years, apparently. You mean you've been following the same sea, um, yes. sea dragons? Yes. Right. Once, once they get a name, so they get an identification tag, like humans, you know, facial. You have a passport, your face is on there, sometimes your fingerprint, whatever, and that's your passport, that's your ID. We give them a name as well. Oh. So people can... Put in like yesterday, the little boy said, can you put Noah on the next one? We said, yes, of course we will. (laughs) So I put Noah up to to be another sea dragon live one that we'll call that next. And then each time you go down, you take another photo. It goes into the library. It gets checked against the photo library. And then it's either a new one, gets a new name, or it's one of them that they've already named and say, oh, now we've seen, like, sometimes we have one that you haven't seen for two years. You, and then you find it again, like, the, on the last... Like, oh, hey, Noah. Yes. We had one called Martha. I didn't find... I just found out yesterday. First photograph in 2015, and now photographed just now in May. Oh. Same one. How did... How... That seems so impossible that within this area yes. you you just meet up with an old mate sea dragon yeah. <laughs> like, it's, yes. is that really like yes. that seems impossible to me no no they are, so they don't move much they are what we call high sight fidelity so they they stay in their area they don't move much which means when you go down you can follow them more or less over the years just don't touch them please they're protected but you can see them all the time and it should be the same like this Martha one, they just come up in March, and last time they <laughs> photographed was 2015. So, where was it for two years? <laughs> yeah, Another what was question. Martha doing? Yes, exactly. Yes. <laughs> to look at them and have this database of Noahs, of Marthas, and yes. all this sort of stuff, is that kind of a baseline to look at research and be like, not only is this population being affected, but you'd mentioned the kelp moving mm-hmm. around as well. Is it looking at how, I guess, these ecosystems yes. are changing more across the board? Yes, because we do realise that there's less kelp as well during the dives. Does that also affect other organisms that live there? Yes, especially small larval fish and other smaller fish that live, and again, for protection and food, that live in kelp, yes. What are you trying to do with that information then? Are you trying to do conservation? Are you trying to look at ecosystems more broadly? What What's the end goal with this research? So, yes, conservation is one, because these guys are on the IUCN list as near-threatened. Some sites around Sydney don't have any sea dragons anymore. When people say, I get emails saying, I used to see lots and they're not there anymore. So conservation is one of them. If we can put them up to, say, threatened instead of near threatened, one level up, get the public involved. This is why we use citizen science. We are also setting up now a website where they can upload their photos 
soon and also email us directly and say, I've seen a one either dead or half dead. So you actually get people on the ground, you know, just citizens who will get in contact with you and say, we've seen a weedy sea dragon here, we've seen one there. You, you actually get that feedback. Yes. You know, once they're gone, then they're gone. And they're really, children love it. As people, we like them. I once met Greg Hunt and said, I love sea dragons, he said. You know, and, and his, his whole area, the Flinders area, he said, that's my area. He loves them as well. People just have this... It's a cutie. What can you say? It's a cutie. Selma Clanton, Research Associate in the School of Life Sciences at the University of Technology, Sydney. What do you do when your job is taken by a robot? Where does all your e-waste go? How do you split your digital assets when you break up with your partner? This is Think Digital Futures. Each week, an exploration of the moral and mind-boggling questions that face us in the digital age. You can listen on your favourite podcast app. Just search for Think Digital Futures. Our global economy is driven by commercial ships bringing goods to our shores. And without it, you probably wouldn't have the clothes you're wearing right now or the phone you're texting on. And although it's the cheapest way to transport goods internationally, commercial shipping also weighs a heavy carbon footprint. Dredging of shorelines to make way for ports, ship pollution and use of toxic fuels are not only affecting aquatic ecosystems, but have both environmental and health implications for humans. Martina Doblin is an associate professor in the Climate Change Cluster at the University of Technology, Sydney. And Martina says although these effects are of massive concern, there's something else no one is talking about when it comes to commercial shipping. But the other big implication of, for the environment of shipping trade, particularly for a country like Australia, is that ships bring in potentially foreign organisms in their ship's ballast tanks. So ports that export bulk commodities like iron ore, they load that iron ore on those ships in big bulk carriers. And then when the ships return from their destinations overseas, they bring with them water from those other ports. What the requirement is currently is that those ships need to exchange that ballast water to reduce the risk of bringing foreign organisms into Australian water. How is this water coming along for the ride? So effectively the cargo gets offloaded, say in India or in China, and then the water has to be taken up at the same time in order to make sure the vessel doesn't tip over in port. So that once a cargo tank is emptied, water is brought into the cargo tank just with a series of pumps and valves. And so what was a bulk cargo chamber in the ship now becomes a ballast water chamber. I'd never thought of that before. I guess it's kind of to make sure that the ship is the same weight in which it came so that it can just stay afloat. So back in the old days where sailing vessels used to do this trading around the world, they brought boulders. And so you can imagine that that was a lot more work to remove rocks from ships. So now water is used as a much more efficient way to keep ships stable when they're at sea. And seawater contains millions and millions of microbes and plankton. What's the, what are the implications of bringing in foreign organisms? Why is that a potential hazard? 
for Australia, which has strong quarantine uh, regulations, it's really to protect ourselves from unintended harm of organisms that are highly competitive in Australian habitats for them to simply take over our indigenous flora and fauna. The other consequence of shipping, um, which is of increased focus now, is looking at the atmospheric emissions of ships in busy port areas and in in industrialised nations or quickly developing countries such as China. This has been pointed out as a potential hazard for humans directly, not just aquatic organisms in the environment. You mentioned a number of things which might be something that the shipping industry could adopt to try and turn this around, and you came up with three different things. What are some of those solutions that you think could be adopted by the commercial shipping industry? Well, I think the first one was to try and reduce the fuel needed by the ship to move through the water. And so something that's been adopted by the US Navy and their so-called green fleet has been to install these flaps at the back of the vessel called stern flaps to try and help minimise the turbulence the ship's creating in the water and thereby increase the fuel efficiency. The second thing is to reduce the energy consumption of the ship in general. So many commercial ships run a very streamlined crew uh, the power use on board really relates to, you know, their personal use for shaving and things like that. But it also, power also helps the ship make its own water for use um, and for human drinking. And so there are some minimum power requirements that the ship needs. But where possible, even things like passenger ships could minimise their fuel use by reducing their energy consumption. Would you be able to kind of retrofit solar panels onto a commercial shipping vessel? Or Yeah, I mean, this is not my area of expertise, but I definitely think solar panel could augment energy supply on ships. It's the sort of energy that could be directed to all the other needs on a ship and the fuel to power the engines, it may not be sufficient for that. I think there are many, many innovations that we could make in this space. And there was a third one as well, which was the fuel quality itself. So how does that come into play here? There are various grades of fuel used by different transportation sectors and shipping, I suppose, has the lowest grade fuel typically. And the oil then contains a lot of sulphur and sometimes nitrogen. And when the fuel is combusted, it generates oxides that can cause acid rain and irritation for human respiratory tracts. Shipping companies have the choice to use different grades of fuel and they could use a better grade. The implication is, though, that it costs more typically. So when oil is found and extracted from the environment, it's typically sent to oil processing facilities and it's refined into different components. Those components lead to aeronautical-grade fuel, then other things, gas, the LNG gas that we use on our stoves. But the thicker fuels are typically used for shipping. And so if companies were prepared to do better by the environment and use higher grade fuels, it would cost them more, but their damage to the environment would be lower. So often when it comes to different conversations around both industry or transport, it seems that we are between a rock and a hard place in terms of here are some solutions that we could implement and really make an environmental difference. But Commercial shipping, it's an inevitable practice. We do need it to kind of transport products or goods around to all ends of the globe. 
should we be looking at it as we should revolutionize commercial shipping or do it differently? Or do you think it's more likely that by implementing these practices, we could really do better by the planet? There's certainly at least two things. One, if the entire global industry cleaned up its act and actually used better fuel across the board, we would make a huge difference. So I I definitely think that intergovernmental agreements and um, suppliers actually just stopping the provision of bad oil, if you like, or bad fuel would help. The second thing is that companies, shipping companies, could make a huge impact by directing research to adopting new practices and the integration of solar panels and batteries on ships, working with engineers to power ships um, differently and coming up with more fuel-efficient systems would be a game-changer, I believe. I don't think we would ever have a world without ships because of their general efficiency in moving goods around the world and and driving global trade. But there is definitely more to be done in this space and it can lead to serious changes and improvement in environmental quality. Martina Doblin, Associate Professor in the Climate Change Cluster at the University of Technology, Sydney. In 2016, 15% of Australia's greenhouse gas emissions came from the agricultural industry, with more than two-thirds in the form of methane coming from cows and sheep. This may not seem like a whole lot, but when you realise 80% of Australia's surface is rangelands or open country used for grazing or hunting animals, you can begin to see why this might be a problem. A collaboration between Green Collar and the Centre for Compassionate Conservation at the University of Technology, Sydney, is looking at the durability of current carbon storage projects in Australia's rangelands. These are technologies that capture and store carbon rather than let it float upwards into the atmosphere. I spoke with Jenny Sinclair from Green Collar and Rachel Nolan from UTS about the collaborative project. There's two aspects. There's carbon emissions and then there's carbon capture or carbon storage, which is where you implement an activity that will sequester carbon. So that would be something like regenerating a cleared paddock into a forest. So you've got a growth of woody biomass or growth of trees, and they sequester the carbon into the wood. Oh, so it's not necessarily tech or infrastructure in place. It's actually the planting of biodiversity itself to grab up that carbon. Yeah, there is technology solutions, but the aspect that Green Collar deals with is the land management aspect. So really looking at change in land management practice to improve carbon sequestration and to offset carbon emissions. A sequestration project would be something along the lines of having a paddock that maybe had previously been cleared for agriculture and allowing that paddock to regenerate into a forest or native vegetation. And the idea of something like planting trees to store carbon is that the trees require carbon to grow. So by planting them to grow, you're taking the carbon from the atmosphere and putting it into the soil around the tree, into the vegetation around the tree, into the tree itself, so removing it from the atmosphere. Where would all these trees come from? There's actually nurseries for tree planting. So depending on where you are, there's a lot of indigenous areas actually. They run indigenous nurseries of native plants to plant on indigenous protected areas. There's also local land care groups that run nurseries. It's quite an expensive process and sometimes they're subsidised and sometimes it's just philanthropic. And other times there can be participation in a scheme such as the Emissions Reduction Fund where they get funding um, to you know, grow the trees and plant the trees and maintain, maintain them. 
Yeah, I might just add there, it's not just about taking trees from a nursery and planting them onto bare ground. There's often a lot of natural regeneration that can occur. So often there might be remnant trees along roadsides um, or within the paddocks themselves. And so if you remove the disturbing process, whatever that may be, cropping or grazing or something like that, that actually allows the area of land to regenerate naturally and so it comes from the landscape itself. Mm. And in terms of this collaboration, what exactly is happening on behalf of the Centre for Compassionate Conservation? What sort of help are you providing in this collaboration? We've got all these carbon projects up and running across Australia now and one of the big questions is how do we make sure that that carbon actually stays on site? And I don't think it would be any surprise to anyone that uh, in Australia we have a lot of risks so... You know, we're a land of drought, we're a land of flood, land of fire. All of these things can affect vegetation. And so then that will affect the amount of carbon that is stored within an area of land. But it also affects the rate of carbon that is being drawn into the land through through photosynthesis. So we're really interested in trying to quantify what are some of these risks. How exactly are you quantifying that? Yeah, that's a really good point. So if you take away climate change, we actually currently can't answer what is the effect of some of these risks, particularly fire and drought. Long term, how does this affect the vegetation and how does this affect productivity? The great thing about partnering with Green Collar is that as part of their monitoring program, they collect a lot of data on biomass, um, which is essentially carbon, um, and they're going to be collecting that over 25 years. 15 to 25 years. years. Yeah, yeah. We do monitor for fire disturbance. We monitor for any clearing disturbance that might occur within project areas where we really do want to develop a predictive approach about you know what future impacts we know exist in the Australian landscape and address the likelihood of a risk having a negative impact on a carbon project. And by negative impact, I mean results in either carbon not being stored at the level that was expected, or it could be another negative impact. Carbon projects go beyond just looking at the carbon storage potential. They also address other co-benefits, I guess that we would call them. So improved habitat and connectivity for biodiversity, you know, and most importantly, what actions can be taken to prepare um, or mitigate for those risks. Yeah, I guess I just want to say one of the interesting things from a research perspective is when we talk about risk, people often think that it's negative. So fire is bad, I guess, would be an example. But that's not always the case. It can be a little bit more nuanced than that. So particularly with fire, you know, fire will cause carbon emissions from the fire itself. And also if there's a lot of trees that are killed, those trees will slowly decompose over the following years and they will also release carbon into the atmosphere. When you're talking about Australia, a lot of Australia's vegetation has evolved to cope with fire and, in fact, a lot of vegetation types actually need fire and so they won't actually regenerate in the absence of fire. So on the one hand, you have this disturbance that can reduce carbon, but if you suppress fire from the landscape for a long enough period of time, then that may actually have negative consequences as well. So I guess in terms of mitigating those risks, it's not just addressing what we might understand to be a risk, but also understanding those ecosystems. Yeah, exactly. Dr. Rachel Nolan, postdoctoral research associate within the Centre for Compassionate Conservation at the University of Technology, Sydney, and Dr. Jenny Sinclair, head of research and project services at Green Collar. Thanks for listening to the show. 
If you like what you heard, make sure to subscribe to Think Sustainability on your favourite podcast app. Just search for Think Sustainability. We're also available on iTunes. This show is a collaboration between the University of Technology Sydney and 2SER Radio. I'm Jake Morecambe. I'm Shane Anderson. See you next week.